And now, a Sorry Wrong Door production of a podcast for your enjoyment. Strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. An absurd glimpse into the post-eclectic age. Sugar's only sweetness. Salt is ocean tears. And you were my only weakness. For years and years and years. Are we going? SISG is a broad spectrum show where we cover topics from the worlds of music, live entertainment, film, nostalgia, pop culture, and anything else that comes into our heads, all with an emphasis on the strange and the unusual. It's basically the things that interest us and we hope will interest you too. Now the devil, she must be a dentist with deep jawbreaker eyes. Red rope hair, gumdrop lips, cotton candy thighs. You're my candy. Welcome back, everyone. We apologize for last month, but things just sort of piled up. And then Uncle Frank got sick twice, so we didn't record anything. But we're here now with Podcast 54 and the month of May. Uncle Frank, what do we have on the show tonight? We have Norm Crosby and our little tribute to him, the King of the Malaprobe. Then we have another reading from Scholastic Books. And then each of us gives our top five television shows that ended too soon. The ones that only got one season or less, to be exact. We also have a science fiction story from the great Frederick Pohl, some avant-garde poetry, recordings of heartbeats, and other stuff, of course. So this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. Let's get started. The hills near Rhinebeck, New York, echo to a unique type of vocal counterpoint. This sound poetry is the creation of Charles Stein, poet and teacher, and his colleague, poet George Quasha. Quasha, with his artist wife Susan, publishes avant-garde poetry through their Station Hill Press. For over a decade, the two poets have experimented with the basic elements of speech, creating a new form of abstract poetry. To prepare for performances of their works, the poets continually practice ancient Chinese martial arts. The exercises, called Tai Chi, are designed to improve concentration. A mock battle with wooden swords is another form of Tai Chi. For the poets, such martial arts hone the instinctive cooperation they must have to create their sound poetry. Creating a new sound vocabulary calls for a new form of notation. Surrounding the meanings of the words are many expressive possibilities in addition to the meanings of the words. 
I use vowels for vowels, consonants for consonants, and I try to make the way the letters look correspond to the way I feel about the sounds. For instance, eh, 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 opt, urgut, norgut, act, I, well, probably, I, I, d, sorat, unt, obot, nt, ogt, nt, orpugut, n, cost, torpet, unt, ot, ot, orpug, orgut, n, top, orustic, rostic, the internal impulse within the sound arises within the body and travels outward to manifest itself in the automatic movement of the hand, like this. Specific sound units provide the basis of their improvised performance. The blending of their two voices creates a third, unpredictable voice. <laughs> Case 1. Age 25, normal heart sounds, mitral area. Case 2, age 18, normal third heart sound, mitral area. Thank you very much. I want to tell you something. I, I, can't, I can't prescribe to you how I look forward <laughs> to coming back here to the Good Time Hour. This is such a wholesome show. It really is. You feel that aura of reek around here. <laughs> the whole image is, is so prenatal. It's so stipulated. Don't you feel it? It's an American show. It's, 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 it's honest. It has conception and perversity. It really is. <laughs> and I think that kids need that on television. Young people need that. Mothers and fathers who are parents, they look for that. <laughs> Kids need an insulation. They need somebody that they can, that they can raise through a pinochle. They need that. <laughs> they need to see a guy like Glenn Campbell, who is, who is suave and, and, uh, and masculine and virile and stagnant. They need that. <laughs> he has an image. Kids know that he's, that he's, 
he's masculine and he and he's a scratch golfer and he hunts and he rides and he rides horses they need to see him on television they need to see him walk out and 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 take a deep breath and say hi i'm glenn Campbell." well that was norm crosby one of the great comedians that came to prominence in the 60s and 70s although he'd been working in, at his craft in the 50s at his height, he was everywhere. His daytime TV, it was nighttime TV. He had his own show at one point, and uh, it was had stand-up dates all over the country, especially in Vegas. And he's still around doing some comedy. And after more than sixty years, do you remember him? Do you know who Norm Crosby is? You probably remember the name, but he was on all those roasts. And then in the eighties, he started doing uh, the beer commercials. Do you remember him? I. I seem to remember. It's hard to look at him, especially when he was younger and really know. But you know when you when you hear him, he had a, 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 a real individualistic persona. He was just a common working man, but a working man that had no command of the English language. His routines are full of mispronunciations. He had horrible grammar, but it's mainly it's the malapropes. And that's when you use a word wrong. Use a wrong word that sounds like the right word in the sentence. But... It's like he had a famous thing where women need love and affliction. So it's sort of that thing. Only his routines were full of all of that. Let's listen to another bit. This is where it's, uh, uh, from an appearance on the Dean Martin Show. Thank you, Dean. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hey, how about the kids on this show? Aren't they beauteous? Really. I think... This is, this is without doubt the most voluptuous conglomeration of feminine pulpitness that has ever been put together. I mean it, it it's just a, uh, if you look for an epitome of conjuncture, this is it. And they are so demure and so voluptuous and so adhesive and so protruding. It's beautiful. And did you notice how Dean treats them with such tenderness and affliction? It's something to see. It really is. They, they literally fling themselves at his incumbents, and he stands there, and he's so suave. He's so nonchalant. He just, he's got a certain inner flux that excretes from this man that's... There's an aura of marination that radiates out of him. I don't know where it comes from, but he's got a certain continental savior fear that, that a lot of guys could learn from him. Norm Crosby came to comedy late in his life. He, uh, he had another career when he started. He was in advertising, kind of big. He was in the uh, advertising manager of this chain of lady shoe stores. I forget, they had like, I don't know, 20 or something in the Boston area. And at first, his dad was a salesman there, and at first he would go in and, and work as a kid or teenager, part-time, just helping out. And then he went to art school, and then he also took classes in, um, pardon me, advertising and promotion. And then he went back and he became the assistant uh, manager of advertising. And then the, the main guy left to go to a mattress company. Oh. And, and then, so he became the main guy. And it was so funny because he's the manager. He's doing everything. He was doing the illustrations. He was writing the copies. Like, I don't know if he had anybody underneath him. But, you know, apparently he was an artist. And he... he when you hear in the interviews, he would say, well, I wasn't really an artist. I didn't do paintings and stuff. I just did the advertising. But he could draw. He just didn't wasn't interested in oils. 
anyway, even then, though, he was interested in comedy. He used to go meet all the other comics around town in Boston and get introduced to their agents. And, and then he started doing his own stand-up. But he was like doing it in these little restaurants, like mom and pop burger places, where it's kind of like, why is there an act here? Or little bars. And uh, But he worked his way up. And the funny thing is, though, he'd watch the uh, Ed Sullivan show on Sunday night. And then he would uh, take little bits or gags or a line here or there or get inspired. And then he would string it all together and then add some of his own stuff. And that was his, his stand-up routine. And apparently... It was changed enough that people he, just didn't, didn't say. Steal them. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, he stole them, and he said, "Yeah, I stole it, but uh, I was working that restaurant, <laughs> the burgers of the mom and pop." He says nobody was worrying that I was taking their routine. Yeah. But then he got bigger, and he went up, um, like to civic things, like the mayor's charity dinner, or at one time he's doing the, um, the actually governor's ball and different stuff. And he became kind of a big wig in Boston. Like it's crazy, and he's it's still a big thing for comedy, Boston. He, oh, like a lot of people. He's still doing his job, and this is just him, you know, with borrowing all this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And uh, so one time when he was there, uh, you know, I forget what it was. It was one of these charity dinners. This guy E.M. Lowe came up to him and said, "You know, you make me laugh. You make me laugh, sir." And he's like. I'm going to give you a week at my club. And he had this club called the Latin Quarter in New York City. He goes, call my lawyer. And his lawyer's like right next to him. When you're ready, call my lawyer. I'll give you a week. And he's like, oh, he's all excited. Then he realized, I have stolen material from everyone in New York City. (laughs) Like, I can't do that. He's like, all right, I got to come up with something else. And he's like, but everything's been done. I mean, that's how he thought. Yeah, yeah. of course everybody's been done. What am I going to do? Well, he used to get all these other jobs. He, you know, he had better club dates, so he was actually going. It was Springdale, I think it was. It was like ninety miles out of Boston. He had a gig up there, and the guys that own it were young, and they're always trying to hit on the showgirls up in their place. And he was trying to ask if this girl um, is she going to stay here tonight or does she commute? But she said. Is she staying here tonight or is she going to communicate? <laughs> and and then it just hit him like, hey, a lot of people say this kind of stuff. Yeah, oh yeah. And it's like, hey, I could do an act with that. I'll do the same jokes, but I'll be uh, this persona. And then he said the first stuff when he went back to the hamburger or whatever he was doing, nobody got that he they was bond. doing it. Yeah. yeah, they didn't realize that he was saying the wrong words or thought, or thought oh, you know, he doesn't have a good... <laughs> <laughs> so he said, finally, I started getting to more upper class place and they realized it was satire. Yeah. So he finally felt ready, called the lawyer, and he goes up to the manager. And the manager, you know, he Not wasn't really, very yeah. happy. He goes, here, I don't know you. I don't know what you do, but here's what you're going to do for me. I got this tumbling act of people. <laughs> and afterwards, the curtain goes and I need 11 minutes <laughs> To switch the act. So, we're not going to get you a, a fanfare of music. We're not going to announce you. You're going to come around the curtain and do 11 minutes. Not 10. Not 12. <laughs> you're going to do 11. And then you're going to walk off. He's like, oh, no. So, that's what he does for this week. And he says, 
he comes out and everyone's like talking. It takes him like four minutes to even realize he's up yeah. there. He'd be like, hey, everybody, you know, and but he didn't think he did that good. And so he at the end of the week, he went to got his stuff together and was going to go get his check. And the manager goes, oh, you know what? I gave you a real tough thing. And you made the people laugh. You still did it. So I'm going to give you a better spot. We're going to give you fanfare. We're going to announce you. Yeah. And uh, and I'll give you another week. And he said he did 18 weeks there. <laughs> and he said it was fantastic. And then uh, Walter Winchell came, and he was a, a big guy that would do... It was like a critic Got and, and a tastemaker. And he came into the place and gave him a great review. And the next day, the the William Morris... Well, uh, the William Morrison agency came and they, they hooked him up so they were his agency and then a day later he got a manager <laughs> it was like great and so the first thing the agency sent him is up to the Catskills on Saturday but not during the week he was better than that so he went on the weekends wow. and he met Robert Goulet there and, and he would come on before Robert Goulet and they had a little banter and stuff oh nice well then his the Goulet's manager come up and goes I was I'm gonna do big tour with Goulet now, and I was gonna hook him up with a woman, some woman that goes, "You got good chemistry. I want you to go and do this tour." Is like, oh my gosh, this is killer. Yeah. So they went all over the place, and he said, usually when you're you're warming up for the headliner, they give you nothing. Yeah. You go up, and nobody notices you hardly. They would go places, and it would go with special guest star Norm Crosby, oh, or yeah, with they would, him. They would and hook it, him up, yeah. And it was like he said, well, because they gave me that false amount of respect, yeah. he was able to go back afterwards to all these places, including Vegas, and book him like, oh, you were special guest star. Yeah. <laughs> so, and he was good. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, obviously. To this day, be. it's sort of funny. It's like the Abbott and Costello routine. You, you know it, you hear it, you know, it's the same thing. But you find yourself laughing because his timing and stuff yeah, yeah. is I mean, pretty is pretty cool. Well, if, if you do something tired and you're and you're still good, that means yes. you, that means you're great. And even his jokes, you're great. They're the old time jokes, so they're not, um, you know, they're almost the same <laughs> same ones he was borrowing. It's but uh, his timing and the way he does stuff, it's just fun with him. What's weird about all this time that he was doing the comedy, he he was hard of hearing. In the military, he lost his hearing to it was terrible. He had to have hearing aids and stuff. And eventually, he would come out and talk about it. And we'll play right now. It's just like a PSA uh, for hearing aids or whatever he did. And then a little bit from Johnny Carson where he talks about his hearing. Norm Crosby refused to let hearing loss stand in the way of his show business career or social life. In fact, most of nearly 20 million Americans with hearing problems can now be helped medically, surgically, with hearing aids, or through rehabilitation. While you wait. For Norm's noise-induced hearing loss, the answer was hearing aids. He no longer feels isolated from family and friends. He more fully appreciates the response from his audience. Norm looks forward to continued good hearing. He has a hearing aid specialist recheck his hearing make instrument adjustments when needed, and assure him of future better hearing. For more hearing help information, call toll-free Hearing Helpline, 800-424-8576. Or write Hearing, Box 1840, Washington, D.C., 20013. You should hear what you're missing. 
You all know this gentleman. He's a, a funny man and a very nice guy. And he's uh, going to be opening this coming Thursday with the Carpenters at uh, Harris at Lake Tahoe. Would you welcome Norm Crosby? Norm Crosby! How you been? Nice. Good to see you. Fine. You're looking well. How are you? I am fine. That Sounds like letters from camp, doesn't it? We... Sounds like letters from camp. Remember, Sounds you always like... write, how are you? I am fine. Dear mom. Yeah. How do you spell chicken pox? Your son, so forth. What does infection mean? <laughs> you remember those? <laughs> what does contagious disease mean, mommy? Did you, did you ever go to camp when you were a kid? I was, when I was young. Yeah, yeah. they sent me to one. I didn't really want to go. I went for three years. <laughs> Ask me, what was I doing? What were you doing? Three years. Three years. <laughs> But I must tell you something. Okay. I you mentioned the Carpenters. Yeah. The next engagement with, with in Lake Tahoe. The last time I appeared with the Carpenters was at the Xarban Coliseum in Omaha, Omaha. Nebraska. Sure. Ed's, Ed's played Xarban. And I want to tell you something. They they took me to Channel Six, your old television station. They That's figured right. that over the years, for real, that we had established a clinical infliction. <laughs> and uh that I would be interested in seeing some of your artifacts and some of your basic rudiments. And I told them I'd seen them already, you know, but they didn't care. So anyway, uh, they took me to Channel 6 and I sat w in your w old chair, John, and I must tell you, for real, I had tears in my eyes. I really did. There was a splinter. <laughs> in the old chair. Well, that's true. I have, I'm into things. I'm yeah. into extrasensible reception and I'm into uh, yogurt. Yogurt. Oh. I love yogurt. You sit on the floor, you medicate. I like that. And my wife is into yogurt. Oh, yeah, she's been going for a couple of years. If things work out, she will move to India next year, and uh, we can correspond. So you meditate? But I, I think it's important, really, that you, that you let it out. If you play golf, you play tennis, right? Yeah. If you have, I just have my golf tournament. You have one, up too? In, yeah, I have one up in Stadion Springs for the Hope for Hearing Foundation oh, at UCLA. Good. And uh, it's can I, ask you about your, can I ask you about your hearing? I know we talked about it. Everybody knows you had a hearing. Have you had it uh, since your childhood? No, no, I got this in the war. No, you see, I, we never mentioned it. No, we no, never no. talked I, about it. We talked about it once. You forgot. I was a war hero. I saved the entire crew of my ship. Did How you did you that? do that? Yeah, I shot the cook. <laughs> so we were talking about Norm Crosby at, when he got done with his... Uh, well, it turned out to be a three-year. I didn't even tell you that. The Robert Goulet thing turned into oh, a three-year tour. Crazy. And then he came out, and then he started doing TV. Um, at first, it was just you know a smaller one that we don't even know now. But then he started getting other shows, and eventually he got on the Ed Sullivan show itself. And, I mean, he was going crazy. He was talking about an interview about the, the Sullivan show... That the way they did it is they would tape it in the morning and uh, or an afternoon, and then they would look at it and edit it and work out the timing, and then they would do it live. But he would come out and say, okay, Norm, you know, shave this one joke, the barbershop joke's out, or, you know, uh, yeah. you got to get 10 seconds off. And some people, they go, you're off the show. <laughs> Just because they're It's gonna... crazy because if you, if you listen to a lot of comedians... They have like a two minute, a three minute, a four oh, minute, yeah, a five exactly. minute. It's everything's a minute. They they talk about that like everything's in minutes, and and they'll be able to. They they're they really are, you know, great with memory and, and being able they to reorganize stuff. And you just that's even comedy. The, even the people that that you think oh whatever no man they are 
really good at memorizing yes. stuff. And, and if somebody says shave a joke, they're shaving that joke and they can remember and they, they yeah. you know, whatever. I mean, if they're if they're come prepared, they could do it. Well, he started getting um, all sorts of daytime gigs. Uh, like you know, there was the dinosaur show. And that's pretty much it. He was saying like there was no like becoming Seinfeld or something. You had to work with what you did, and so he did stand up acts, and then he was in some comedy uh, like Carol Burnett and different other ones where he would do play characters, and then other ones we'd just come up and do a stand up and visit with people like the Dean Martin show and the and um, like we played earlier the John Campbell show. And then he got his own show, which was called The Comedy Shop, where he would come in and just announce it and then maybe do a little bit of his routine. And then they would have all these other comedians come in. Everybody, all kinds of people. Um, Ones that became big later. So Jay Leno was on it. Michael Keaton was on it. All kinds of people were on it. And then they would have a special guest star. So this was in like the 80s or something? No, 70s. And then they had uh, a special guest star who would be like, they would knock and it's Zsa Gabor! And she would just come and talk and then leave. And it would be random, but they would be regular stars, better than Zsa usually, like real actors. But it was just a weird thing to do. And how they would do it is they would just have comedians come and just run these five-minute things all the way through. And then they have special guest stars come and they do it all the way through. And then he always wore the same suit, so no matter what, they could cut it. And they would just cut up shows together. So anyway, here we're going to play a clip from the beginning of that. <laughs> it's Norm Crosby's Comedy Shop, starring Norm Crosby, with guest stars Dick Martin, Jack Carter, Joel Stevo, David Fry, Robert Agoya, and some very special surprises. And now, here he is, Norm's best friend, Dick Martin. Norm was, of course, on The Love Boat, but he was also on more dramatic things like Adam 12, uh, which was a a cop show. Yeah, yeah. And um, all sorts of things, you know, that took regular acting. He only had one comedy album that he put out and that was live from the Copacabana which he he did when he was bigger and that was the one in New York and it was different completely because the um, the Latin Quarter was a place mostly for tourists and they would put big shows on and nobody talked like the like it was kind of like a variety show uh, with a stage and the Copacabana you're in the middle of the of a small, intimate uh, dance floor, and then everyone's around you in tables, and it's all and they're eating and doing all they're yeah. eating, and they're all the people from New York, all the big wigs, all the writers. Ed Sullivan himself would go there. Anyway, let's play another uh, Norm Crosby bit from Dean Martin show again. Hey, I'm sorry I'm late, Dean. I had to go to doctors. That's all right. We've been doing everything wrong anyhow. Yeah, I got a touch of gregarious reluctance. <laughs> you ever had that? No, no. It's like a rapture, but it don't hurt. You know. Merry 
out. He come out, the doctor, and he says to me, give me a thorough illumination, complete, you know? And he says to me, well, you got low blood pressure, but I'm not worried about it. I said, marvelous. If you had low blood pressure, I won't worry about it. <laughs> they're creeps anyway. I hate doctors. I mean that. I shouldn't say that out loud, but they're creeps. All of them. Physicians, sturgeons, psychiatrists, uh, deviated sectors, every one of them. They go to that medicinal school. They've got to sign like a hypocrite oath, right? The graduate. You know about that? Yeah, that's a promise not to squeal. <laughs> that's why they wear masks when they operate, the sturgeons. Sturgeons? In case something goes wrong, you say, who done it? The guy said, I don't know, I had a thing over here. <laughs> you know who really does good, though? I gotta say, the research guys. They're the most best ones, the research guys, because they help people. I mean, really, if, if it wasn't for Fahrenheit, doctors wouldn't know how to took temperatures, right? <laughs> and if it wasn't for, like, Pasteur, they wouldn't know how to kill germs. And before William Penn, they used to write the prescriptions with a pencil. Did you know that? <laughs> Well, there's a lot more to talk about, Norm, but uh, we're going to end our little tribute right here, and we're going to make our fade out at that Copacabana Club from that record. And that's uh, him talking to the audience about ancient Rome. Norm Crosby, one of my favorites. Want to look for proof to history? That's where you find proof. I'm serious. You get a book and look it up. The Roman Empire, where compassion all started. When we derived insulation from the great people, Helen of Troy, Sydney from Albany, uh, Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and them guys. When Julius Caesar rose in his box at the Acropolis. Or the Colosseum, or one of the cheap movies, what's the difference? And he delivered a great ovulation to all the people of Rome. Came on a, on a holiday, it was a, a second orgy of the season, which happened to fell on a Friday during Lent and nobody could eat fish. And this magnificent man spoke to the women of Rome. And he said to them, cast your bread upon the waters and it'll get soggy and sink. And it did, and that's how he got pizza. Did you know that? First class. This was a great leader, an emperor, a hero. And a magnificent golfer. Good golfer. Caesar was, you play golf? First Roman golfer. And knickers. They didn't even have pants. He had knickers. A little short sleeve shirt with three buttons and an alligator over here. A real one. They didn't even have sewing. He used to put it on. That's the kind of guts he had, walking around with an alligator in the summertime. If you could picture Julius Caesar lining up a woodshot on a fairway in Rome, and some people walk across in front of the green, he would holler, IV! <laughs> well, forget it, but don't explain it, all right? It would take too long. No, really. This was a great man. He, he suffered agony, he suffered heartache. If you feel compassion for a human being, feel for Julius Caesar. Caveat emptor, ex libris Joseph Mealy. Leader of all mankind. And yet he went with a girl for four years, betrothed, steady, Cleopatra, and they never communed. Not once in four years. They never communed. And I don't care where you come from. You don't go with a girl four years and don't commune that you don't get at least a nervous stomach. Am I right? You've got to get something from that. And he gave her everything that a man could give a woman in those days. Ladies, he gave her uh, pierced earrings, 
He gave her a child bracelet. He gave her an elephant. Spears. Stretch pants. Boots with a little zipper. A net bathing suit. Everything. And they never communed. Because they couldn't. She only spoke Egyptian. She came from Egyptian. And uh, Caesar only talked Latin. He came from Latvia. They couldn't communicate. Until one crucial day. It was a Thursday. Might have been quarter of three. The fourth race was just getting ready to go. I think Charlton Heston was riding Ben-Hur. You remember that? You remember Ben-Hur? They made a picture two years ago for six million dollars. Ben-Hur. They spelled her wrong. The four horse was in the bag. This is the truth. And Caesar tried to tell, if you had information, right, you tell your friends, stay away from the four. But he couldn't tell her because I explained already, they couldn't commune. And he got so frustrated, <laughs> trying to tell her that in his frustration, he diverted to Latin, which was his mother tongue. And his father too, they lived in the same house. And he said to her in Latin, hic ad hoc, pro quo hoc, ad hic. And she said to him, take a drink of water, they go away. <laughs> and then she took a shark and she collapsed on the steps of the Colosseum. And they wrote down in the coronary report that she died from collapse. But she did not. <laughs> of course not. Don't you remember this from school? She died from an abscess in the box. She had a poison abs in a pocketbook and the claps was loose and it snucked out bitter in the butts. And she got rigor motion of her left ventricle and a rash and she dehydrated. And they wrote down in the doctor's publication that she died from an abs in the butts, but she really got hit by her butts in the abs. <laughs> I can't explain it any better than that. And now, pretentious readings from Scholastic Books. Another tale from David Duncan's Strange But True. The Girl Who Fell Six Miles. The explosion ripped the air high above the Bohemian mountain region of northern Czechoslovakia. Villagers looked up in alarm. They could make out the jet airliner six miles above them, but not the raw hole blown in the luggage compartment. The plane, a Yugoslavian DC-9 on a regular flight from Stockholm to Copenhagen to Zagreb and Belgrade, flew on for a few seconds before other explosions tore it apart. A horrifying rain of wreckage and bodies hurtled down. Twisted steel and victims were scattered over miles of the forested countryside. The tail section plunged into a snowy wooden slope. A game warden named Hank reached the spot first. Nothing, he reasoned, could have survived. He saw several bodies. Then, to his astonishment, he heard a feeble moan. Lying in the snow was a blonde girl in a dark uniform. She was Vesna Volvik, 23, a stewardess. Hanky wisely made no attempt to move her. He covered her unconscious form with his coat and hurried for help. An ambulance rushed her to the hospital, where she underwent three hours of operations. 
Dr. Mislav Rondo was the surgeon. Vesna regained consciousness briefly. She was able to speak her name and give the number of her flight. The following day, she recognized her mother, who came from Belgrade. With Mrs. Volvik was Dr. Dragolsvav. He conferred with Dr. Rhonda. The two surgeons decided to transfer Vesna to Prague by helicopter for neurosurgery. In Prague, specialists removed a piece of the vertebra that had pressed into Vesna's spinal cord. The operation succeeded, and slowly Vesna recovered. But she couldn't remember the fall, 32,000 feet, the terrible seconds of January 26, 1972, were a blank. Doctors considered this lapse in her memory a blessing. The shock of recall might have affected her mind. The investigators studied the wreckage as well as the voice and light records. The evidence was clear. The first explosion had been caused by a time bomb hidden in the luggage compartment. Instruments registered an explosion during the conversation between the pilot and the stewardess. Up to that moment, everything on the jetliner had been working normally. Unanswered was the question of how Vesna had lived when everyone else aboard had died. What had taken the lives of many of the passengers was a sudden loss of air pressure inside the cabin. They had died strapped to their seats. Vesna's survival is a matter of guesswork, assisted by something she muttered after the spinal operation. She mentioned oxygen masks and fretted not being able to help anyone. Fitting her remarks into the known facts, investigators put together the chain of events surrounding Vesta's miraculous escape from death. The explosion occurred when the passengers were due to be served a meal. Consequently, Vesna was on her feet. During the ghastly moments of flight, between the first explosion and the breakup of the crippled plane, the passengers screamed for breath. Vesna scrambled for the oxygen masks. Masks were found near where she and the tail section came to earth. As she tried one on, the tail section broke off. The stewardess was thrown into a corner and knocked unconscious. Her physical system was thus slowed, and she was relaxed during the fall. With Vesna inside, the tail section struck a pine-covered hillside, the treetops cushioned the impact. Vesna was hurled clear and slid down the hill, further reducing the impact. She had come through explosions, decompression, the fall, and the crash, and lived. The name of Vesna Volvik, the girl who fell six miles, is imprinted upon the medical history as one of the greatest examples of the durability of the human body. In the springtime we sing around the lake as we travel along and we hear the glides cuckoo
Case 3, age 16, normal allowed second heart sound, left sternal border area. Case 4, age 20, four normal heart sounds, mitral area. read that the Simpsons it was renewed for their 30th season yeah that's crazy <laughs> that's crazy that's but longer than Gunsmoke and everything that's now. that Gunsmoke's only 20 and South Park's 22 well and you got shows like 60 minutes that's 51 seasons right South now. Park is 22 <laughs> yes it is that's absurd I mean that yeah if you just keep going all those things are on to, just do so well with topical stuff that that's how they keep going you know yeah well you know and if Simpsons ever stop maybe they'll just keep going just to stick it to them to be far yeah. but nobody's gonna beat 60 minutes they'll all oh, go oh no 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 we'll or, all go we're, this is or, or uh, episodic film one are, day at a time or life, one life to live or those things oh yeah, like yeah soap like, operas yeah. are right yeah of course so whatever you know but uh, those stats are amazing but we're not talking about that tonight folks we're discussing those TV series that we loved, but apparently we were alone because they were only one season or less. So, and we're going to do this. I'm going to do my top five, and James is going to do his top five. So, James. So, there'll be two number fives, two number fours. You get the rest, etc. Two number ones. It's a, it's a battle royale. Whoa. So, James, what's your number five? My number five is Square Pegs. Square Pegs. Oh, that was, was a good show. Was, uh, it's kind of funny because, uh, you know, in, in doing the list, I went back and revisited it. And I was, it was 1982 to 1983. It's funny that I remember this show because yeah. I'm, you know, six or seven. At the time. At the time. So that makes sense because I have memories from seven. But I, I re- always remembered this one episode uh, that I was telling you. Uh, we were talking about this, and it's the baseball episode. We'll get to that, but I, I can absolutely remember watching that, and I don't know if it's a rerun or whatever. But I, I, I think they I might have rerun it. it, but still, it would have been. But it was only a season, so that because they didn't re, they didn't really rerun not the, much the stuff. It wasn't like now where you can go on Logo or you know Ovation or something. Well, there were other shows things. like Gilligan's Island they reran forever. No, 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 no. But, but Square Pegs was on one about, of those. 
anything that was big or had three seasons or whatever, even Star Trek or whatever, even though it only had three, they still, you know, that was something that was popular. But, but this was, uh, you know, it only had 20 episodes and it starred a young Sarah Jessica Parker. Uh, you know, everybody knows her from yeah, Sex in the wacky. City and she got, she got her start playing Annie on stage, but this was like her first was this big, for TV thing. This is yeah. For TV. Right. And, um, Jamie Gertz, you know, of Lost Boys and yeah, other things. Yeah, Twister. <laughs> she played Muffy, and that was oh, the, yeah. you know, oh, the yeah, uptight. They, they had the stereotype, so she was the preppy. Yeah, she was like the uptight prep person. That, or what was, she was like in charge of every club. She was like all kinds of stuff. Overachiever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amy Linker, uh, who was uh, best friends with Sarah Jessica Parker. And it was funny because Amy was the gal. She, I didn't know this, but she played... Like she had a problem with her weight or whatever, she she wore wore, wore padding in the show. Oh. She was, and they did it. I mean, I, I as a kid, I didn't think about it. But well, they, it's so funny because she didn't look fat. I saw no, her no, no. now, not at all. But they, not at all. But they, they, they padded her so that she would look a little bit fat. But anyway, so the fat friend, which is not even like whatever, <laughs> the the friend that was slightly overweight, you know, was she, the 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 gimmick or whatever was. Every episode, she was she had like a plan to get them popular, and and she would drag Sarah Sarah Jessica Parker in into that scheme, right? And uh, and the, the tagline was two awkward teenagers uh, desperate to fit in at high school, and it was created by the Saturday Night Live uh, ex writer Ann Beats. Oh yeah, she she also was in National Lampoon. Yeah, and and uh, it's it had a catchy theme song, and but that only played at the at end. At the end, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. But you which know, sometimes didn't even play at the end. Interesting, depend on the episode. In 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 the pilot, the waitresses actually is the band, and they're dressed like nurses, and they actually sing the song live in the and pilot. Who are the waitresses? And the, the waitresses are the the band from the 80s that sing I know what boys like. That's I mean like everybody knows that song. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But anyway, so they were they had that fame anyway, so they got a, a legit band and they played the, you know, they played the uh, Square Pegs theme. Um the crazy thing about this is that Ann Beats was interviewed like in 2015 about the show and she said, "Oh, you know the reason why it got canceled?" Like it, the crazy that all those kids were on drugs. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> yeah, and they, she said, and and then they interviewed Devo was on the show too, and Devo, he, they, Devo the band, Devo yeah. made a guest appearance, and the one kid, the one guy from Devo said, "Oh yeah, dude, I remember going on the show. They just, you know, we're, we're going through all the things, and they asked him about Square Pegs. and goes, man, those kids were all on drugs. It was crazy. Wow, that's they all went on to stuff. He goes, though. I know. And I, what's your name? And I don't want to say Sarah Jessica Parker. I don't want to be bad oh, mouth yeah. anybody, but who knows? Like, well, remember that Tracy Nelson? She was Ricky Nelson's daughter. Was on that, and she was later on the the Father Dowling Mysteries. She's like the Watson to him. She was like the uh, Valley Girl one. Yeah, and then the guy that was played Kirk's son. Was like the uh, new wave guy. Oh, I totally didn't. That get was Kirkson. You killed was, those Falcons. Killed my son. I, Klingon, so, excuse it's me. It's so funny from uh, you know from uh, Star Trek Two. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. Oh no, I, th- for two and three, because three they kill him. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. 
That's so funny that that's him. I t- now yeah. you said that. Well, and it's so weird because he doesn't act like him, obviously. No, but and he yeah he plays like that's the one. Two side that's my kids. favorite favorite episode. Right? It's called. Oh, is he the baseball? Called, one? Yeah, yeah. So he's got no joy in Weemawee. Oh yeah, because that's their school. Right? And Weemawee is the high school, and so they have a. Uh, uh, they have tryouts and they have like a co-ed team. I don't know what. To, it's kind of a weird thing. They're playing yeah, baseball they're being, and they have like be, a, way ahead of their time. They have a co-ed team. And the coaches, they're having open tryouts and everybody's there for some reason. It's kind of a loose, loose storyline. But uh, the guy that's the star pitcher is you know making fun of uh, of the you know the Kirk's son Johnny Slash right? Johnny Slash right and Slash is saying uh, he's like. He said, you know, doesn't say anything, and he goes, "Hey, grab a bat, grab a bat!" And so uh, he gets up there and he grabs the bat upside down. He turns it around. All of a sudden, he turns into a savant. He like hits the ball out of the thing. <laughs> he hits three straight home runs, and he makes the team. And and uh, the thing that I thought was the funniest thing, and then I revisited it, and it's it's the clip I'm gonna play. Oh yeah, is, good. Is uh, <laughs> Steve Sachs of the Dodgers of the <laughs> was on it, and he. Is not like this at all, but they have some cheesy lines. And he goes, you know, they the the story is, you know, he they win their first game since 1955. He hits three home runs. Slash does at home, and they go away. And Slash is kind of a weird cat, so he's like, oh man, I just don't feel right. I don't feel right. And he strikes out, and he like goes and hides in a locker. He doesn't know what to do. And Steve Sachs is coming to see him like as a scout, and he comes, <laughs> he talks to him, and he goes, come on, man. It's not like, you know, everybody strikes out. I struck out. I strike out. Well, you know, one time. <laughs> you know, like, and that's totally not Steve Sachs' personality. Like, if they make him seem, you know, totally egotistical or whatever. But anyway, so the show ends, that that particular episode ends in in uh, saying, you know, I just, I, I just, you know, Slash says, I just feel more comfortable at home and and uh you know they all walk off and the coach says well at least we'll win half our game <laughs> <laughs> nice well, let's hear the clip so hey slugger where's your team spirit what are you slacking off here even i strike out once in may i think but i didn't let that bother me when you're a dodger you've got to give 110 percent steve how often do the Dodgers play at Wimowee? Well, we don't play at Wimowee. Then you don't have any home games. <laughs> Mr. Donovan, I want to go home. Okay, so you don't want to go to L.A. There are plenty of other teams out there that want a guy like you. Do they play Wimowee? No. I like it at Wimowee. I know where everything is. The house with the back kite. Patty, Lauren, and Marshall. I don't like it here. Everybody looks different when they're not where you expect them to be. That's why I watch reruns on TV. I know what's going to happen. Johnny, I think some people were born not to run. Some people were born not to be popular. Let's go. Yeah, come on. At least we'll win 50% of our games. That'll be a first. Steve, do you have a date for cats? Well, yeah, I'm taking this girl. She's in college. As Yogi Berra said, it ain't over till it's over. That was great. Very cool, James. Well, let's go to my number five. My number five is more recent. I was watching this with our sister Kathleen. Um, 
we would have we would watch some other uh, uh, show, but this one we would play before because everything was recorded at her house. And this is the grinder. This is a legal comedy show. It was only one season; it's twenty two episodes. It was um, September of twenty fifteen to May of twenty sixteen. And it had uh, Fred Savage and Rob Lowe. Oh, yeah, yeah, That yeah. was a really good show. The timing and everything. And it had critical acclaim, and and the fans talked good about it, but it didn't have the ratings. But um, Rob Lowe is um, an actor who's been doing for eight seasons, I, I think it is, on a, uh, you know, a, a lawyer. Court drama. Court right. drama. Yeah. And it's very overdramatic and over the top, and so is he. And he's kind of like got absorbed into his role, and they're canceling it. And there's no other shows coming to him because he's been on that show too long. And and so he goes home and stays with Fred Savage, his brother, who's a real lawyer. And his dad's a real lawyer. And his dad, yeah, their dad's a real lawyer. And Fred Savage's always been insecure. <laughs> About him, and then the the brother decides he's gonna become a real lawyer because I've been on a show all this time. I know what to do. <laughs> and, and Fred Savage just cannot handle it because he's always stealing his thunder and also just screwing things up and saying crazy things. This is kind of like Green Acres, where everyone is on board with Rob Lowe, no matter how crazy things get. And Fred Savage, except for Fred Savage's wife, she always supports him. So it's like two people at least. But it's like Fred Savage is in real reality, and everyone else is on some other crazy wavelength. And the the timing was interesting, back and forth, and just rapid fire. And the kids were weird kids, and they would never support their dad or believe in him. And Fred Savage, you know, of course, Rob Lowe in high school was the great actor, and, and Fred Savage was the crew, and he was all proud that they, we were black and you could never see him. You know, you could, you, could, you could run back and forth and you would, oh, I was like the wind, I was like the shadow. And he was like getting all into it, you know, because they were talking about acting, and throughout the episode he'll be in the house, you know, when they're talking and they go, they leave, and then Fred Savage was there the whole time, camouflage sitting there. Anyway, here let's That's super th- funny. This is not a clip, but this is this is uh, was the commercial for it. So here is the grinder. I want him on that stand. I don't care what it takes. Fight him! After eight seasons, the grinder series finale begins now. Uncle Dean, it's so cool watching you like watch the show and stuff. But that doesn't make him a killer. He's mouthing the freedom words. You might recognize Dean from the Grinder. 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 Are you grinding? I was. Once upon a time. What are you looking at? What's up there? You just get upset every time he comes into town because, you know, he's the star and it makes you feel like, you know, a side character. Oh, hey, Stu. Hi. Uh, what's going on in my office? Your brother's telling war stories. Come on in. Sit on the floor. In eight years on a show, he knows a lot of legal words, but he doesn't know what they mean. The grinder never settles. settles. He's not, never settles. Not in his nature. What is even happening right now? I know what they mean. I just don't know how to say them so good. Your Honor, my client Victor Ramirez has resided at 887 Oak for nine years. On June 5th, landlord Albert T. Krantz attempted to raise monthly rent to $750, violating Section 2-9A of the Idaho General Statutes. General Statutes. I did not understand one word of that. Um, I have a question. Have you ever talked before? 
So, what are you gonna do now that the show's over? It's so clear to me now. Dad was a great lawyer. You're a great lawyer. I became a character who's a great lawyer. I should be doing it. For real. The defense calls Mr. Albert Krantz. Do you mind if I... Hey, sure. Oh, wait. We'd be backlit. Oh, you know what you're doing. So you're gonna go to law school? Well, I don't think I need that. I did eight years of a primetime legal drama. You pick stuff up. I mean, he thinks he's the grinder. He knows nothing about the grind. I grind. Yeah. I am the grinder. Yeah. I grind hard. Okay. All right. And you know Dean, he's probably already moved on to the next thing. Hey guys, I've got my assistant hooking up the bar for later in the month. <laughs> I need those cards. You only think you need them. Grinder! Thanks for watching, bro. Seriously. How you doing? Objection. Can't touch the judge. Sustain. That's her thing. I'll allow it. Your Honor, this is insanity. I have 10 million objections rounding down. Yeah, borrow your glasses. Man, I like what you got here. You made the right choices that lead to a meaningful life, and I want that. And you make me think I can have it. I love you, brother. I love you so damn much. <laughs> okay. Oh. <sighs> We don't do this enough. Hug for a really long time like this. It's gonna be great. You're talking. Are you gonna whisper or are you gonna talk to me? No, it's a stage whisper. I don't, I don't know what a stage whisper is. What's a stage whisper? It's a whisper that people can hear. That's talking. Yes, but it's more dramatic. So you can see their their relationship together. And, and you know, Rob Rowe really likes Fred Savage. And mo most of the time he's trying to support him. and But, you know, everybody loves him, basically. And, uh, and also, though, he's sort of thoughtless. So <laughs> he'll just sort of negate the stuff that Fred Savage thinks is cool. Anyway, uh, Kathleen always says that everything she likes gets canceled, and it's pretty much true. And this was one of the uh, the victims of her curse. So anyway, James, what's your number four? My number one, or number four, sorry. My number four is uh, the Ben Stiller show. <laughs> oh, the first one <laughs> on MTV or the no, other the one? one that was on Fox. Okay, okay, the Fox one only read, ran for it ran from. The Ben Stiller show was from 89 to 90, but I'm talking about the Fox show that's from 92 to 93. And it was 13 episodes. It was created by Ben Stiller and Judd Apatow oh. when they were young bucks. And it starred Ben Stiller, young Andy Dick, a young Bob Odenkirk, oh. and then also uh, Jennifer Garofalo. You know. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, Janine, sorry, Jennifer, Janine Garofalo, and um, she's always awesome. Yeah, yeah. So, and it's they were it was a collection a collection of of sketches that weren't live, so they were like little vignettes, uh, and sometimes they would they would weave themselves through with a okay. with one thing that went you know they yeah. do other things, but they had they had this thing like behind the music early U two and he played Bono and they had that like several times during I remember the... that because they did it as if it was the Partridge family yeah and the, the actual manager of the Partridge oh family. yeah yeah and and <laughs> and 
like I, I didn't even get it at first because I'm like, oh, they just have like this cheesy manager or whatever. But yeah. then I like, oh yeah, that's and the they did that commercial for cereal for like love for uh, Lucky Clovers, man. That's As what a U two song, it's called yeah, because it's the the uh, the U two song one. Oh, is and that where they it's, do? It's, oh. they, they make they it's it's the one song, and they're like. One box of Lucky Clovers. <laughs> it was pretty funny. Nice. But, so, yeah, so they did the Bono sketch, and then uh, you could tell that it was a little bit a little bit of a precursor to the cable guy. It was, like, dark? Or? Yeah, and there was just a little bit of of edge to it, but also, like, the, the jokes were, were kind of like inside baseball kind of a joke where, you know, even the intro was real, like, just yeah, super nonchalant. They come out of the, the dressing room and they're like, "How are we going to start the show?" And then the like, lead writer goes, "I don't know. How about we do this?" And they're just like, yeah. kind of making it for other comedians a little bit. It's, yeah. But but anyways, so that was that. And then they had, like I said, there's a bunch of sketches. And and I think my favorite one, which is going to be the clip, is is uh, the B minus time traveler. Oh, let's let's hear that one. <laughs> nice. So here it goes. Why, in the house of General George Washington, of course. But who are you? And where do you come from? George Washington. 1776. Redcoats. Minutemen. Why, the old professor wasn't crazy after all. His old time machine really works. Coming this fall, meet a new kind of time traveler. She's just an ordinary citizen like you and me. And if what you say is true, and you have indeed traversed time, you'll know every strategy and battle of the conflict to come. The revolution is won! Uh, well, sir, actually, all I remember is redcoats, minutemen, and you have wooden teeth. <laughs> well, tell me something I don't know. Didn't you study American history? Yeah, but I wasn't a freak about it. Well, that's great. That's just great. Sorry! B-minus time traveler. With nothing but a B-minus average from an American public school, she plunges through space and time, helping whomever she can with her vague, sketchy knowledge of American history. Come on, Stacy, shake those cobwebs loose. July 7th, 1941, a day that will live in infamy. September 12th. 1941, a day that will live in... Come on, General MacArthur, they both sound right. How could you forget the day Pearl Harbor was bombed? Well, it's like super easy to cheat in that class because I had this friend, Stacy, we had this system rigged where you would write it on your arm. She was always the one who asked, why do we need to know this stuff? Well, now she has her answer. Look, Mr. Columbus, one of your ships gets lost, either the Nina or the Pinta. No hablo inglés. Oh, I should not have cut Spanish. Um, Jorge, la quién es? Es malo. Crash your ship, It's an endless pop quiz, and now she wishes she'd done the reading. Why am I crossing the Delaware? Am I attacking? Am I retreating? What? Just give me something here. Possibly retreating. I don't remember. Oh, well, that's a great attitude. That really helps me a lot. Look, I know you gotta bring more shoes. Enough about the shoes already. Everything is shoes and teeth with you. Just give me a fact, a date, something. Listen to me. When I was studying this in school, I was trying to get my driver's permit. I was cramming for those stupid SATs. I had about a million things on my mind. For heaven's sake, keep trying. If you can't remember that date, this could be the greatest disaster since Washington capsized in the Delaware with all those shoes. 
B minus time traveler. She never thought she'd be tested on this. Stop yelling at me! Well, if you're the future, I quit. Let me tell you, this I'm out of here. All right, that was awesome. That was very great. Right, uh, she di- she didn't exactly save history. <laughs> no, <laughs> I was wondering where they were going with that shoe joke business. Yeah. All right. What's number four, Frank? For okay, you? my number four. I think we both discovered it pretty much simultaneously. It was a late night TV. It was a syndicated show, and um, oh, I'm I don't even know if it did thirteen episodes. It was a full season. Oh, it was a full season. Twenty. Yeah. Oh, thank goodness. Yeah. But anyway, this was a Bruce Campbell show before he went on and did Burn Notice. Yeah, but definitely after, you know, Army of Darkness and everything. So, oh, yeah. And like, Brisco- he was on everybody's radar because of that, Evil Bris- Dead, obviously. After Briscoe County, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Anyway, and this was Jack of All Trades, which was a... a I thought it was hilarious, but a lot of people didn't care for it. Oh, I loved it. Yeah, well, yes, you did, and I think, uh, you know, Greg liked it, and all the Bruce Campbell fans. But it takes place in, I I believe, like the early 1800s, and it's in the French Caribbean, and uh, Bruce Campbell is a spy, a forced spy, because I think he had an affair with Thomas Jefferson's wife, and so he sends him out of the country as punishment, and... He is a spy against the French for some reason, and and I, why I don't know because they're the ones that gave us money for the revolution, and everything, yeah. and sold us the Louisiana Purchase. But anyway, Napoleon is played by the guy, the actor who played Mini Me, as <laughs> they wanted someone short, and um, there's also another spy, this British spy, a woman, and um, so they're working together and he's he's sort of like the scarlet pimpernel or zorro he he's he's come up with this character that and she's all excited she wants to meet the great defender <laughs> of the of the island he does it by accident right yes yeah. he does it by accident and then when she finds out it's him she's horrified because she thinks he's a buffoon but anyway they work together and uh, hilarity ensues so i think we'll listen to the uh, the opening credits the song And this will explain it all. So here we go. Eighteen hundred one, the revolution had been won, and Uncle Sam's favorite son had a job he needed done. Which brought Jack to a lady, both beautiful and smart, who found his mix intriguing. A scoundrel with a heart. Very good. You know, this is it's, it's a hidden gem because I have people at work. Uh, Frank got me a a, a, a signed copy of of uh, Jim. Uh, I mean, Bruce Campbell holding up the glove in Army of Darkness, saying, and he wrote "Groovy" on it. And uh, I have it hanging up at work. And the, you know, some guy came up to me. He's like, "Oh man, this is so awesome." He's like, "Where are you into him for?" And whatever. And I mentioned. Uh, 
I mentioned this show, and he he, he had never heard of it. And the guy, he's like, a big fan of big it. fan of him. So I lent him the DVD. Nice. So. <laughs> we got another. So we're gonna make uh, yeah one one person one at a time. At a great. time. Very good. Well, James, what's your number three? Okay, so my number three is Wonder Falls. And Wonder Falls was on Fox, and it was on in 2004. And it was created by Brian Fuller and Todd Holland. It's basically the story of a Brown University grad, uh, so an Ivy League school, right, uh, with a philosophy degree who, who ends up having a dead-end job at a gift shop in Niagara Falls. <laughs> they have a... A, uh, and I don't know if this is a real story or not. I haven't been to Niagara Falls. There was a but, there was a weird gift shop uh, where they actually found a mummy from Egypt in there. It was a curiosity shop place. But I mean that. So there's a there's a legend in this story. Oh, right, the legend that, that a a princess was sacrificed. A Native American princess was sacrificed over the falls, and uh, they have a a a. Uh, a fountain with I her. guarantee you that's not real. <laughs> fountain going over, and it was sacrificed a long time before Americans came. Like yeah. not not you okay. know before the Europeans. Oh, the fountain come. goes pours the water over the falls. So no, the fountain is is of the the native princess falling over in her canoe, and then it falls oh, into. Okay. The, anyways, a lot of people make wishes and and uh, ask the lady of the of the falls for for stuff. She comes to work one day and throws the quarter in, and and I don't know if it's coincidence or what, but she just happens to start hearing animals talk to her, fake animals, inanimate animals, <laughs> inanimate animals, and one of the the first one is one of those plastic injection molds that you know we know. Oh and, yeah, and the famous lion and like, uh, Universal Studios and, and, and one, one of the people, uh, one of the you know the guests. Bought one and and it doesn't mold right, so she's like, "I want my money back." And she sits on the counter, and the thing just happens to start like it gets animated and starts talking to her. And of course, nobody else can hear, so you don't know if she's crazy or what. But they start little by little those animals, and it's that, and it's a like pink flamingos on her parents' lawn, and it's all these inanimate object animals start talking to her and tell her things to help other people. And she's like a terrible person at the beginning, hates her family, and slowly but surely she gets redeemed by having to do all these little things by helping to help other people better their lives. That's a cool show. Well, yeah. That is very weird. I can see why that was so only one season. It was canceled after the fourth episode. Oh. And there's only there's 13 of them made, and you can buy them on DVD, and they have like retrospectives. It's, like, it's got a cult following now. Oh, that's cool. But anyways, that's my number three, and, and here's, our, here's our clip. God has to talk to people. How else would mankind know God's will? That's a very good point. This is helping. Say more. You need to listen closely. He has a theology degree. Several, actually. How many do you need? One more. Leave me alone. But just because a scripture says God's talking doesn't mean he's talk-talking. People tend to take license with that detail. It's not always going to be, Hello, Jay. Stop that. Well, some folks believe that early man's gut instinct was God telling our ancestors to fight, flee, or fun have. Although several prominent serial killers claim that God gave them very specific instructions. This isn't helping anymore. 
Why'd you go to the serial killer place? I'm gonna have to borrow those, James, because you said you bought them, right? Oh yeah, I own them. All right, mm-hmm. I gotta see that show. That's right up my alley. All right, number three, Frank. My number three is a show from uh, January to June in 1980, and it was these were one-hour episodes, uh, 14 of them. And this was uh, created by Stephen Canal, and you know him. He's the guy with the beard, and he was the king of the 70s. He had the Rockford Files, the greatest American hero, the A-Team. Was it the dude that like wrote on his typewriter? Yes, and would pull out the paper and throw it behind. All right, come on. Just say that. Everybody knows that. (laughs) He did the original 21 Jump Street and Hunter and Hardcastle McCormick, all those things. So this was one of his less successful shows, but... It was really good. It, uh, we played the opening uh, music to it at the beginning of the opening to this segment here. And you can see it's so funny. It's definitely like out of the 70s, that, that music style. And so was the show. It, it, it played a lot like the Rockford Files. But the, the actors, it was Ben Vereen oh. and, and Jeff Goldblum. And the only thing I had seen Jeff Goldblum before this, and, and I don't know what else he was in. Buckaroo Banzai. I uh, know that was after this. He was in um, the new remake of The Invasion of the Body Snatchers. <laughs> and so that was before this. So I knew him from that. But So I loved him. And, and this was such a great role for him. It's the perfect, he's the very flightly, flighty, straight-laced kind of character. And in the, in the uh, pilot, he's an insurance salesman or works in the insurance industry. And he's engaged to the boss's daughter and they treat him terrible sort of and the the mother-in-law treats him terrible and he's kind of wanting to pull out of this life and ben vereen is this con man who finds out that this um mob guy she has died and so he goes to the guy's safe deposit box and claims he's from the government and finagles his way that they're going to open it and and he takes the money with him we're confiscated he has these two side guys dressed as cops well, what he doesn't know is that money was stolen from these neo-Nazis. <laughs> and so, of course, the whole crazy thing is they see him and they chase him. And everybody's chasing him. He's got a bag and he runs into Jeff Goldblum. And suddenly he's got the bag. And it was pretty good uh, pilot. And then from there, at the very end of the show, Ben Vereen needs a job to help him get out of jail. But if they're going to let him get out. And he goes, well, you work for me. I'm going to start my uh, my detective agency because he got all this confidence. And and earlier, he's always reading these detective novels and the, and the ones that are like the early radio kind, like yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the ridiculous dialogue, the wonderful dialogue. And um, okay. and he was taught karate, but he keeps saying, my sensei says you cannot use this for violence. But he's really good at it. He's lame, but he can like, well, he's like knocking people all over the place, and. Um, Ben Vereen saying, I, I took you for a brown shoe when I first met you, but you're going to kick ass. And he goes, what are you talking about? You know, straight lace, suit guy. And uh, and the nickname of Ben Vereen was 10-speed. So that's why it's 10-speed and brown shoe. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, then they go on from that with, uh, you know, just solving crimes and, and everything else. So we're, here's a clip of when they're going over to the house of this woman who... who um, who actually sent her her resume in for for to work for them, and she's looking for action, and um, they happen to go to her house because they have to borrow a car and find out some information. So anyway, here's the clip. Wow, 
Where'd you guys get that ambulance? It's a long and rather bizarre story, Miss Courtney, but as you can see, we're still actively pursuing the case. He has such a way with words. Is there a back door? Uh, Miss Courtney, E.L. and I, we, that is, would like to know what the rest of the names on this list are being violated for. Did you guys steal the ambulance? I mean, how do you get an ambulance? Uh, Miss Courtney, if I may, from time to time, a private detective has to cheat the... We stole lady. it. Uh, yes, we stole it. Wow. Let's see the list. Well, um, Mark Grimes. Oh, yeah, uh, he's a planner. He was uh, arrested in jail for planning the uh, Vacaville Bank Vault heist. Vacaville Bank Vault heist, I see. And uh, Harry Monroe. Oh, he's a top safe cracker. Safe cracker, I, I see. see. And uh, the late Mason Eddie? Oh, I think he's an explosives expert and driver. Driver by driver, are we referring to a wheel man? Yes. I have it. What do you got? A heist. Aha. Uh -huh. They were planning a heist. These three guys were planning a heist. Uh, Dalem, their parole officer, found out about it. They tried to kill him. It all fits. Yeah, yeah. So who killed Mason Eddie? Mason Eddie was killed by That's easy. Um, yeah. um, and boy, that doesn't make any sense. Why would they kill off one of their own team? You get it. Okay, we're on to something. We're on to something. Why don't we stake out one of these guys and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see what it leads to. Yeah, um, look, uh, can we borrow your car? <laughs> yeah, it looks kind of silly driving around an ambulance, you understand. Please. Sweet. You guys are really something, you know? I, I mean, really something. I'd love to be living the lives the ones you're living. Well, Miss Courtney, sometimes it's more fun than other times. Uh, if there's an opening, if there's anything I can do, uh, even a part-time uh, work, uh, did I mention I'm looking to change fields? You did. Your application is uh, on file in our we, office we right gotta now. We got to go. Oh, excuse us. Thank you, Bernice. Okay. We'll not forget you for this. Yeah. Thank you. Wow. Well, yeah. That's, uh, so you that's can pretty good. <laughs> you can see how the show would go just from listening to this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, James, oh, we're moving our way up to number two. What's your number two, uh, sir? My number two is Freaks and Geeks. Oh, my gosh, that's a good show. And that's in 1999. It, it was from 1999 to 2000, and it was created by Paul Freig, and um, it was on NBC, and it was canceled after the 12th episode, wow. but uh, 18 were made. Oh, they made right? 18. That's so, crazy. So it's already a, got a maid. It's a, a gifted high school, uh, a high schooler girl. She she befriends a group of slackers. Those are the freaks, and then while her younger brother tries to navigate the freshman year of, oh, of high school, and his, and his friends, his are, the friends are the geeks, right? <laughs> so, um, and actually, this is included on several lists of the greatest shows of all time, and it was only it was really yeah, well written, right? And and. Um, they they said that they they said that I think at the time NBC got bought out and they had new management come in and and they always want to just have their own stand. Well, it's that, and then it's funny because everybody has their fan theories or whatever. And one of them was, well, you know, the guy that you know the head head guy was, uh, you know, had gone to boarding school. He didn't understand public school life. He didn't understand the the uh, you know the. Uh, That's probably not it. I guarantee you, it's like, it just sounds like okay. I guess no. But, Either the ratings Does he were understand too low, money or, or, you know. or it wasn't their show, and so they didn't want to do good because they want their shows to do good. Yeah, so right. It's one of those two things. So uh, James Franco, Seth Rogen, and, yeah. and Jason Segel got all got their starts, right? Franco, everybody knows, and, and Seth Rogen and they Jason. They know all Siegel. of them, yeah, really. yeah, yeah, obviously. And then um, it's set in high school uh, in 1980 and 81, and. Uh, on the shows that canceled 
too soon on TV Guide. It was ranked number one. And um, Linda Cardellini, uh, it's funny because I had never seen the show, but I used to watch David Letterman, and David Letterman had her on. And I was like, oh, man, like this seems really cool. I, I'm, I'm going to watch this show. And it was the, the, the lady, and, and he was saying how great she was in this part. And, and uh, she seemed kind of real she's nervous. She's the older sister. Yeah, she's the, she's the, the main character. Yeah, the main character. Her Lindsay and her Weir. brother are both. L- Lindsay Ware is her name in the, in the show, and Sam Ware. And so Lindsay Ware, or uh, Linda Cardellini, uh, was on David Letterman. And I, I was like, I got to see this show. And she seemed really nervous. You're like, oh, man, she's not doing really well. And, and it was really awkward. She said, on the way over here, they're talking. He goes, on the way over here, they just told me the show was canceled. Oh, <laughs> wow. And that's how everybody found out. Kind of found out. Or at least I found out. And, and uh, it, But it was, seemed shocking. And you know, even David Letterman's like, oh, man, well, you're going to do good for yourself or whatever. But it was like really didn't know what to do because he was kind of heaping praise and uh, and she was still young, and that was her first big break. And it was a, a good show. It, and and um, I'd like to play the clip that is my favorite part of the whole show, but it's it's there's no sound, and all you see is, of course, Biff from <laughs> Back to the Future plays the the mean um, the mean gym teacher, and. And they crank call him. There's an episode where they crank call him. He gets all mad. He's all bitter. And then they um, they make fun of Sam. And for he he doesn't understand. You know, he I don't think he's he doesn't understand. You know, women or the sex talk or whatever. And and the coach takes him into his office. And all you see is the window. And you see him like scared and shocked and like just what he's telling him and by the end he's laughing and and the way that they do so it he's is, giving him the sex talk yeah and like just giving him like hey this is how it is or whatever it's gonna be you're gonna do fine whatever and like it's so him like be reacting and being shocked and being terrible like whatever and, and by the end he's laughing and like it's such a great thing and it's great for Biff because thank god he's still doing stuff because yeah. he's great and um but it's just it it is just done so well, and there's no dialogue, so it's just him, them, the guys actually, you know, they're talking, but you don't hear anything, and it's just them reacting, and it, it's it's a it's great. That's awesome. Anyways, and then, and then who is the dad? Uh, uh, their dad was was a uh, Flannery. Flan- I'm so bad. yeah, Joe Flattery. Yeah, yeah. From, from Second City, and he's awesome. Flaherty. I remember Flaherty, there, yeah. there was one scene where. Um, they find out that the cool dad of one of their friends is like having an affair, and they suddenly get oh, shocked, yeah. and they're wondering, could could dad be having an affair? And then their dad comes walking in their underwear, looking all frumpy and no sexy to him, and they start breaking out laughing. And then he laughs, and suddenly goes, "Hey, what are you laughing at?" <laughs> but just stuff like that was always, and and then great long dialogue stuff too. Anyway, do you have a clip, or is that was a clip you telling? I do. No, no, no. We have a clip, and uh, it's quick, but it's one of my other favorite ones when uh, Jason Siegel is, is uh, has this twenty-one piece drum kit because he's like all obsessed with Neil Peart <laughs> and, and John Bonham, and and uh, anyways, he's he's uh, he's just found out that John Bonham died. Hey, Nick. Oh, hey. What's the matter? Um, John Bonham died. You know? 
Yeah, I know. Last week. He, he's dead. You know, it's like he's dead. And that, as a result, there's no more Led Zeppelin. So. Well, why don't they just get a new drummer? What, are you... Let's just forget it. So anyways, that's that's oh, my number that's two. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, my number two is from 1975. It was just from September to March. It was hour-long episodes, and it was Kolchak the Night Stalker. Oh, my gosh, it's such a good show. And it's a good show, and it's a terrible show at the same time. That's Darren, good. Darren McGavin is the main character, and then Simon Oakley is his boss. They're they're pretty much like sidekicks. It was, and the, the music father from. Uh, oh yeah, well, from, well, uh, Darren McGavin's the father from the Christmas Story. Yeah, so and Simon Oakley was from a lot of things, but Bob Bob Black Sheep. He was one of the officers in that one, and the music was uh, Gil Mel. He was the composer, and he did uh, music for the movies Kill Dozer and The Six Million Dollar Man, and um, well. Night Gallery and Ironside, all kinds of stuff. For movies, The Andromeda Strain. And it's a really cool music that starts off with uh, Darren McGavin whistling. But anyway, um, it started out as two TV movies. There was a guy who wrote a book, and it was called The Coal Shack Papers. And it wasn't even out yet. He hadn't got it published. And someone got wind of it, and they optioned it from him. And so... They were going to make a TV movie of the the Kolchak papers was was the the movie which is the Night Stalker, which is about um, Carl Kolchak as a reporter in Vegas, and he uh, you know tracks down a serial killer who's been killing people, and in the book you don't find you don't get any kind of clue, but at the very end you find out the serial killer is a vampire, <laughs> and he and he kills him. Oh. And and so, so in the that's mo- why it's like supernatural. Yeah, show. and in the movie, Carl doesn't know it. He thinks he's crazy, but they they show you that it's a real vampire slowly but surely. At first, you think it's a serial killer too. So and it and it was um, that that author was Jeff Rice, and um, that script for the TV movie was Richard Matheson. You know who did Terror at Twenty Thousand Feet oh, from okay. Twilight yeah. Zone, bunch of stuff. Oh man, yeah. Um, Anyway, then that was really successful. So the next year, they brought out another movie, The Night Strangler, for TV, and Richard Matheson wrote the whole thing to that. And um, and so then they thought, well, we're going to do a series, but they were going to put it as an hour episode once a month in the Sunday Night Mystery Movies, you know, where they had Columbo and yeah. Millen and Wife. But then they decided to do their own half-hour series. And I think it would have been better as the hour one. They give it more time, like the TV movies, because they had to rush it. And a lot of the makeup and stuff suffered, and sometimes they didn't have time to to give yeah, it what it needed. But even with those defects, the show is really good. Uh, it's always um, Kolshak finding out. I think most people know this show, but in case you don't, Kolshak is always running into the supernatural. He's great. He's got a little straw hat. He looks like a character out of the the old newspaper days of the 30s, but he's running around in the 70s. And he's uh, always looking for the truth and always looking for the great story. And he's always running into weird supernatural horror things that nobody believes. And by the end, um, 
you know, he, he always loses the proof or they tear his story up or the powers that be get him in trouble and send him out of town. Yeah. So anyway, here's a clip of one of these. It's, it's the ending of one of the episodes. Actually, it's the first episode of the TV series. And here's the postscript. When they drained that pond, they found nothing, nothing but some old clothes. For some reason, the police suddenly decided they wanted those and my head. I don't know how Vincenzo will handle the charges of arson and malicious mischief lodged against me by Captain Warren, but that fire was a big one, a six-alarmer. A blast furnace couldn't have done a better job. Everything gone. The house, my story, the evidence. Like they say, ashes to ashes. One thing survived the inferno, however. There's enough of it left to read the name of the maker. Peel's Footwear, London, Southwest One. They're still there, of course, but they don't make this style shoe anymore. It was discontinued over 70 years ago. 70 years ago. How could you explain it? Who could explain it? Who'd believe it? So there you have it, the great Darren McGavin. And this could be number one on a lot of people's lists. Uh, or just yours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, it's number two for me. So anyway, James, what's your number two? Are you to number one? I'm number one. Oh, my gosh, we're to number one already. So I think my number one is, and I think this is a lot of people's number one, and uh, with no disrespect to Freaks and Geeks, there's no reason that this shouldn't be number one on TV Guide. <laughs> yeah. Because this is Firefly. Yeah. And Josh Whedon, we know that you, he created it, right? And we know that what he did before, which is Buffy the yeah. Vampire Slayer, and, and what he he's done later, after, the Avengers. which is the <laughs> Avengers, right? And so, you know, the, just, the, just the amazing amount of dialogue that that guy... Produce yes, and, and it's good. <laughs> it's good, and and that it, it's, you know, he created all of Buffy the Vampire Slayer dialogue, and people would say, "Oh, do you record, you know, teenagers talking or whatever?" He's like, "No, I just, I just made, made it up." When he's at five by five or whatever, any of the things that you could remember from Buffy, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, just made it up, and and he does this in a way that's really good. So th this this show was from two thousand two to two thousand three. And, it, and it, of all things, it's a space western drama. Yeah. <laughs> and it follows the crew of the Serenity, which is a Firefly-class spaceship. Yeah. And that's where the the the, uh, the name comes from. It's can It was canceled after eleven episodes, and fourteen were made. And it takes place in twenty five seventeen. It's after Earth got overpopulated, and then they had to take spaceships to to another basically solar system so it's generation ships they travel in those spaceships for a long period of time and then they get to wherever they are which is another solar system but it's another complete thing and then they with they, lots of planets yeah with lots have. of planets and they they have lots of uh and so they're 
relatively speaking, going shorter distance in space, considering yeah. the whole galaxy. But and all their ships have a, a spinning rotation thing, so they have, yeah. you know, they have a, at least a nod to uh, centrifugal force gravity, like you'd have to have, not imaginary gravity machines. And yeah, and and so they have a a uh, a thing where they have the core planets, and they're at the center of this this system, and then they have the peripheral planets, and. And those are actually and, were just terraformed, really. Correct, and, uh, they, and they're more like uh, it's more like those. those I think those are kind those of those things are like the the uh, old west, yeah, a little bit. And that's that's where you get the old west, and there, you know, hardly any law, and they and they there's a big at the beginning that beforehand before the show, like the backstory is that there's been a a civil war of sorts. Yeah. Without they, slavery. <laughs> yeah, and they're trying to they the peripheral planets are trying to remain uh free of the of the core planets uh you know government, but they lose. And two of those uh rebels basically they call them brown coats are this captain and his first mate. Right? And the captain is the guy that plays in Castle. Yeah. <laughs> And he's the evil minister in Buffy, <laughs> and that's Nathan Nathan Fallon, right? And um, and then they have a cast of uh, characters on this ship, and there there's nine of them. And and the way he pitched it, Joss Whedon in the beginning is nine people looking out at the abyss of, of space, seeing nine different things. And basically, there's a there's a uh, um, sort of a human weapon that's been created, and her brother that they find and they're trying to keep them safe and smuggle a little bit like uh you know han solo and yeah they're always doing jobs robbing and, and, yeah ro robbing sometimes and james baldwin who is you know great on on uh, chuck is uh jane who's like got to be one of the best characters yeah. he's the he's the one that's the hardest core criminal basically yeah but and, hilarious. But he's, and he's kind of an oaf a little bit too and and uh loves guns and i don't know it, it, the whole show is done really well and if you could have 14 episodes and think oh my god this show was amazing they did it they you, yeah. you think oh the, you can't do it and it's the it's one of the only shows where i thought holy crap this is leaving a hole in my heart that there's not more because I, I'm literally thinking there's so much left to be explored. And it just, of course, they just ended it. You know, they're, they were just getting started. So 14, I mean, he could have gone forever. And you know what? Then we wouldn't have the Avengers or whatever. I don't know. But They did the film, but I, I don't like it as much as the series. No, the film, they... they they kind of went left field with it. A little bit. Yeah. And anyway, it was only one idea. It was like one episode, basically. Yeah. But they killed off some people and stuff that were, I thought were, you yeah. know, was kind of dumb. And anyways. Do you have a clip, James? I do have a clip. What's going on? You got knocked out. Did we get a payoff? Did we get the money? Can you move your arms and legs? Huh? They're not moving. Do you want to know why? Uh. Your spine. Huh? You hit it pretty hard when you fell. Oh. Uh. Fine. Yes. 
So I gave you something to knock out your motor function so you wouldn't wrench it when you came to. Should wear off in a half an hour. You'll just be bruised. Fine, okay. How much did they offer you to sell out me and River on Ariel? That's crazy talk. Then let's talk crazy. How much? Anybody there? Anybody else? You're in a dangerous line of work, Jane. Odds are you'll be under my knife again, often. So I want you to understand one thing very clearly. No matter what you do or say or plot, no matter how you come down on us, I will never, ever harm you. You're on this table, you're safe. So I'm your medic. And however little we may like or trust each other, we're on the same crew. Got the same troubles, same enemies, and more than enough of both. Now, we could circle each other and growl, sleep with one eye open, but that thought wearies me. I don't care what you've done. I don't know what you're planning on doing, but I'm trusting you. I think you should do the same. I don't see this working any other way. Also, I can kill you with my brain. That was the clip, and, and that that's... Yeah, that's, well, that's my number one. With a bullet, maybe. With a bullet. That's hard to beat. That's a really... Uh, well, that's on the top ten list of everyone's show. Mine is a little more obscure. And this one left a hole in my heart, too, because I really fell in love with the character. And this was... But this is another one that's closer to now, too. It, it was in 2007, from January to April. There's only 12 episodes. And it was made for the Sci-Fi Channel. And it was based on a series of books by this guy named Jim Butcher. And and um, this is a successful book line. This man written, wrote a lot of different things. And this, his is sort of a new kind of genre, which is uh, detective fantasy. And that's what this is. This is called The Dresden Files. And it's about sort of like a detective Harry Dresden, but he's really like a wizard. And his backstory is that... Um, his mother was powerful in magic and came from a powerful family, both magic and money. And she fell in love and married this uh, like a carnival magician who was better than, than carnival, but he was not big enough to be like Vegas. Anyway, and, and um, w there was the brother of this woman who eventually kills the father because he wants Dresden, who's powerful, he could already tell the kid to grow up with him and have him trained. And... Uh, so unbeknownst to the kid, he kills with magic the father. The kid goes to live with the uncle. And he's taught by this guy named Bob, who that's not his real name. He's a guy from the 1600s, a wizard who uh, brought his lost love back from the dead. And then he was cursed. 
and so he has to live in as a ghost in this skull of his and he can't go more than like 10 or 12 feet from it and and he teaches dresden and uh dresden finds out the uncle killed his father and he kills him and so the the rest of the council of all the different magic people whatever they go after him to kill him and and they they don't really show it there was only the 12 episodes how he got out of that but somehow i think he was able to the he and the bob were able to tell him that the guy he killed was planning to kill all the rest of them you know he was getting dresden and powerful and then destroy him but it's really interesting it's done like a film noir there's a valerie cruz plays the detective that he consults for to make his money and there's just different lost souls that come in he's got wizard on the outside of the door and people see him in the phone book and come and the, and the guy who plays dresden is uh paul blackthorne he was uh, a lot of episodes of lipstick jungle and he's got a show it's going to start may 29th called the in-between which is another kind of a fantasy show. Oh, cool. Anyway, he's done a lot of stuff. Dresden, I think, is the only time he was a likable character, though, in anything. And um, Ter- Terrence Mann is the guy who plays Bob. He did a lot of stage work. And uh, he was uh, Snowball the Clown in Big Top Pee-wee. And he did oh, nice. Pippin uh, on um, on stage. And, and he was in the Chorus Line movie years ago. So, anyway... It's really well written. It's compelling. It's interesting because there again, it's another part of the magic world. But they show um, just a different of way of they they have to keep people from finding out, just like in Harry Potter, and um, and they have talismans. Writing his is like a hockey stick. Well, yeah, like instead of a staff, he has a hockey stick and a drumstick, and. Uh, and that's what he uses, like a magic wand or a staff, and somebody else has a sword. And people are always making comments like, oh, you're a wizard, and they, they named you Harry. He, goes, he kept saying, I was named after Harry Houdini, you know, by my dad. <laughs> anyway, it's a very interesting show. Um, we're going to have a clip. This is actually just like an ad for it. In my line of work, the crime scene, well, that's just the beginning. Anything from the lab? No explosive residue, no accelerant. Killer. He wasn't in the hotel room. The murder weapon was black magic. When the truth is met with disbelief, when the unbelievable becomes real, give me a call. I'm Harry Dresden, a different kind of detective. I don't think I'm doing this show justice, by the way, to describe it. No, it's really good. You guys should rent it and see it. It's yeah. a top-notch show, and that's why I put it as number one. I put it number one also because it gets no love at all because nobody knows what the heck this is or even have heard of it. Yeah, so, no, it's good. So anyway, that's number one. Uh, you know, in our top five, I don't know. I, I think both of ours are great, number one. All of ours are great, and, I'm, and there's a lot more out there. It's very sad when really well-written shows make it and – a lot of mediocre stuff goes on forever. I mean, great shows go on forever too, but I, you know, I barely had, you know, Manimal going out of my top five. You know. <laughs> yes, Manimal, of course. <laughs> well, and the man from Atlantis. Uh, there's another one. There's tons of them. So there you have our our top five duel of the TV shows that should have gone on, but died an untimely death. And so we're gonna go on that. We're gonna go out with a segment, the ending segment from Square Pegs. Square pegs, square, 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 pegs. Always never quite right. Square pegs, square, 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 pegs.
saved my life, but it was how he did it that forced me to murder him. I am sitting on the edge of what passes for a bed. It is made of loosely woven strips of steel, and there is no mattress, only an extra blanket of thin olive drab. It isn't comfortable, but of course they expect to make me still more uncomfortable. They expect to take me out of this precinct jail to a district prison and eventually to the death house. Sure, there will be a trial first, but that's only a formality. Not only did they catch me with the smoking gun in my hand and Connaught bubbling to death through the hole in his throat, but I admitted it. I, knowing what I was doing with, as they say, malice aforethought, deliberately shot to death Lawrence Connaught. They execute murderers, so they mean to execute me, especially because Lawrence Connaught had saved my life. Well, 
there are extenuating circumstances. I, I do not think they would convince a jury. Connaught and I were close friends for years. We lost touch during the war. We met again in Washington a few years after the war was over. We had to some extent grown apart. He had become a man with a mission. He was working very hard on something, and he did not choose to discuss his work, and there was nothing else in his life on which to form a basis for communication. And, well, I had my own life, too. It wasn't scientific research in my case. I flunked out of med school while he went on. I'm not ashamed of it. It is nothing to be ashamed of. I simply was not able to cope with the messy business of carving corpses. I didn't like it. I didn't want to do it. And when I was forced to do it, I did it badly. So I left. Thus I have no string of degrees, but you don't need them in order to be a Senate guard. Does that sound like a terribly impressive career to you? Of course not. But I liked it. The senators are relaxed and friendly when the guards are around, and you learn wonderful things about what goes on behind the scenes of government. And a Senate guard is in a position to do favors, for newspaper men who find a lead story useful, for government officials who sometimes base a whole campaign on one careless repeated remark, and for just about anyone who would like to be in the visitor's gallery during a hot debate. Larry Connaught, for instance. I ran into him on the street one day, and we chatted for a moment, and he asked if it was possible to get him in to see the upcoming foreign relations debate. It was. I called him the next day and told him I had arranged for a pass, and he was there watching eagerly with his moist little eyes when the secretary got up to speak, and there was that sudden unexpected yell, and the handful of Central American fanatics dragged out their weapons and began to change American policy with gunpowder. You remember the story, I suppose. There were only three of them, two with guns, one with a hand grenade. The pistol men managed to wound two senators and a guard. I was right there talking to Connaught. I spotted the little fellow with the hand grenade and tackled him. I knocked him down, but the grenade went flying, pin pulled, seconds ticking away. I lunged for it. Larry Connaught was ahead of me. The newspaper stories made heroes out of us both. They said it was miraculous that Larry, who had fallen right on top of the grenade, had managed to get it away from himself and so placed that when it exploded no one was hurt. For it did go off, and the flying steel touched nobody. The papers mentioned that Larry had been knocked unconscious by the blast. He was unconscious, all right. He didn't come to for six hours, and when he woke up he spent the next whole day in a stupor. I called on him the next night. He was glad to see me. That was a close one, Dick, he said. Take me back to Tarawa. I said, I guess you saved my life, Larry. Nonsense, Dick. I, I just jumped. Lucky, that's all. The papers said you were terrific. They said you moved so fast nobody could see exactly what happened. He made a depreciating gesture, but his wet little eyes were wary. Nobody was really watching, I suppose. I was watching, I told him flatly. He looked at me silently for a moment. I was between you and the grenade, I said. You didn't go past me, over me, or through me, but you were on top of the grenade. He started to shake his head. I said, also, Larry, you fell on the grenade. It exploded underneath you, I know, because I was almost on top of you, and it blew you clear off the floor of the gallery. Did you have a bulletproof vest on? He cleared his throat. Well. As a matter of... 
Cut it out, Larry. What's the answer? He took off his glasses and rubbed his watery eyes. He grumbled. Don't you read the papers? It, it, it went off a yard away. Larry, I said gently, I was there. He slumped back in his chair, staring at me. Larry Connaught was a small man, but he never looked smaller than he did in that big chair, looking at me as though I were Mr. Nemesis himself. Then he laughed. He surprised me. He sounded almost happy. He said, Well, hell, Dick, I had to tell somebody about it sooner or later. Why not you? I can't tell you all of what he said. I'll, I'll tell you most of it, but not the part that matters. I'll never tell that part to anybody. Larry said, I should have known you'd remember. He smiles at me ruefully, affectionately. Those bull sessions in the cafeterias, eh? Uh, talking all night about everything. But you remembered. You claim that the human mind possessed powers of psychokinesis, I said. You argued that just by the mind, without moving a finger or using a machine, a man could move his body anywhere instantly. You said that nothing was impossible to the mind. I felt like an absolute fool saying those things. They were ridiculous notions. Imagine a man thinking himself from one place to another. But I had been on that gallery. I licked my lips and looked to Larry Connaught for confirmation. I was all wet, Larry laughed. Imagine. I suppose I showed surprise because he patted my shoulder. He said, becoming sober, Sure, Dick, you're wrong, but you're right all the same. The mind alone can't do anything of the sort. That was just a silly kid notion. But, he went on, but there are, well, techniques linking the mind to physical forces, simple physical forces that we all use every day, that can do it all, everything, everything I ever thought of and things I haven't found out yet. Fly across the ocean? In a second, Dick. Wall off an exploding bomb? Easily. You saw me do it. Oh, it's work. It takes energy. You can't escape natural law. That was what knocked me out for a whole day. But that was a hard one. It's a lot easier, for instance, to make a bullet miss its target. It's even easier to lift the cartridge out of the chamber and put it in my pocket so that the bullet can't even be fired. Want the crown jewels of England? I could get them, Dick. I asked, Can you see the future? He frowned. That's silly. This isn't supersti- how about reading minds? Larry's expression cleared. Oh, you're remembering some of the things I said years ago. No, I, I can't do that either, Dick. Maybe someday, if I keep working at this thing. Well, I can't right now. There are things I can do, though, that are just as good. Show me something you can do, I asked. He smiled. Larry was enjoying himself. I didn't begrudge it to him. He had hugged this to himself for years, from the day he found his first clue through the decade of proving and experimenting, almost always being wrong, but always getting closer. He needed to talk about it. I think he was really glad that at last someone had found him out. He said, Show you something. Why, let's see, Dick. He looked around the room, then winked. See that window? I looked. It opened with a slither of wood and a rumble of sash weights. It closed again. The radio, said Larry. There was a click, and his little set turned itself on. Watch it. It disappeared. And reappeared. It was on top of Mount Everest, Larry said, panting a little. 
The plug on the radio's electric cord picked itself up and stretched toward the baseboard socket, then dropped to the floor again. No, said Larry, and his voice was trembling. I'll show you a hard one. Watch the radio, Dick. I'll run it without plugging it in. The electrons themselves... He was staring intently at the little set. I saw the dial light go on, flicker and hold steady. The speaker began to make scratching noises. I stood up, right behind Larry, right over him. I used the telephone on the table beside him. I caught him right beside the ear, and he folded over without a murmur. Methodically, I hit him twice more, and then I was sure he wouldn't wake up for at least an hour. I rolled him over and put the telephone back in its cradle. I ransacked his apartment. I found it in his desk, all his notes, all the information, the secret of how to do the things he could do. I picked up the telephone and called the Washington police. When I heard the siren outside, I took out my service revolver and shot him in the throat. He was dead before they came in. For, you see, I knew Lawrence Connault. We were friends. I would have trusted him with my life. But this was more than just life. Twenty-three words told how to do the things that Lawrence Connaught did. Anyone who could read could do them. Criminals, traitors, lunatics. The formula would work for anyone. Lawrence Connaught was an honest man and an idealist, I think. But what would happen to any man when he becomes a god? Suppose you were told twenty-three words that would let you reach into any bank vault, peer inside any closed room, walk through any wall. Suppose pistols could not kill you. They say power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And there can be no more absolute power than the twenty-three words that can free a man of any jail or give him anything he wants. Larry was my friend, but I killed him in cold blood, knowing what I did, because he could not be trusted with the secret that could make him king of the world. But I can. Case 5, age 40, normal splitting of the first heart sound, mitral area. Case 6, age 23, normal splitting of second heart sound, pulmonary area. Well, not unlike spring itself, this podcast is coming to an end. We hope that you enjoyed it, or at least some of it. But of course, as always, before we really go, we have Uncle Frank's one last thing. That's right. Tonight we go out with the great woman who changed dance in the theater forever. May 26, 1878 is the birthday of Isadora Duncan, the queen of interpretive dance. She was born in San Francisco, and maybe the individual spirit of that city influenced her art. For she went on to develop the freeform style of dance, which she performed in her bare feet wearing a loose-fitting tunic. Her influence in dance is felt to this very day. She had a life of great creativity, but also great sorrow. She endured a failed marriage and her two children drowning, and then she was strangled to death when her scarf got caught in the wheel of her open car while she was riding in it. We salute her tonight with an old Danny Kaye spoof on what she left in her wake. So this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. See you next month. Thank you.
the theater, the theater. What's happened to the theater? Especially where dancing is concerned. Chaps. Chicks who did kicks aren't kicking anymore. They're doing choreography. Heps who did steps that would stop the show in days that used to be. Through the air they keep flying like a duck that. 